Well, it's my privilege to talk with you about metabolic syndrome this afternoon. And before we begin, I'd like for us to bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to think about your simple methods for preserving and recovering metabolic health. I pray for wisdom for myself and Dr. Hillman to share information that would be most useful to those in this room. And I pray for your Holy Spirit to empower each of us as we go home to use the tools you've given us to address the metabolic concerns of those around us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the theme of our conference this year is radical practice, and I understand one of the definitions of radical is root. So Dr. Hillman and I wanted to talk about addressing root causes of metabolic syndrome, and the information is going to be rooted in the Adventist Health Message, so I'm going to present some quotes from Ellen White, as well as in scientific evidence, which we'll discuss also. So first I'm going to briefly define metabolic syndrome. We'll describe its importance and then talk about treating root causes through nutrition, sleep, and trust in God. And then Dr. Hillman is also going to talk about um, treating root causes through exercise, sunlight. And we both felt that trust in God was important enough that we should each share how we incorporate it into our practice. So first of all, metabolic syndrome is a cluster of risk factors for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. And a person has it when they have three out of five criteria. The first being central obesity, defined as an ethnicity-specific waist circumference. For persons of European origin, the cutoff is 40 inches or greater in men and 35 inches or greater in women. For non-Europeans, the International Diabetes Federation has other ethnicity-specific cut points, and I would refer you to their website. Second criterion is elevated triglycerides of at least 150 milligrams per deciliter or medication treatment for that condition, reduced HDL cholesterol less than 40 milligrams per deciliter in men or 50 milligrams per deciliter in women or drug treatment for low HDL, elevated blood pressure defined as systolic at least 130 or diastolic of 85 or above, or drug treatment for hypertension. And then finally, elevated fasting blood glucose of at least 100 milligrams per deciliter or history of this condition and treatment with drugs for it. So metabolic syndrome matters because it does have very costly potential consequences. It doubles the risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease over the next five to 10 years, and it increases the risk of type two diabetes by five-fold. So we wanted to talk about root causes, um, which have been defined as the overweight or obese condition physical inactivity, and insulin resistance. And recent literature has found insulin resistance to be a connecting factor, kind of a central factor that links all the five components of metabolic syndrome. And so for addressing overweight status and insulin resistance, our goal is to shift the energy balance so that energy expenditure exceeds energy intake. A study published this month looked at dietary patterns, and we're trying to find out which dietary pattern was most associated with metabolic syndrome. So they looked at over 8,000 Chinese persons in a case control study, 
they divided them into three dietary patterns. The first was the high-protein cholesterol group, characterized by high intake of animal offal or animal internal organs, animal blood, and sausage. The second group consumed a high-carbohydrate diet, consisting of a lot of processed carbohydrates, such as simple sugars in candied fruits, cakes, ice cream, and juice. Third group was a balanced pattern, characterized by vegetables, mushrooms, and coarse cereals in the diet. And they found that the consumption of the high animal foods was associated with the highest prevalence of metabolic syndrome. And some of the potential mechanisms they listed are that these foods are high in saturated fat, and they're also high in energy intake, energy-dense foods, and the blood in the meat products um, can contribute to iron overload, which has been associated with ins insulin resistance. So consumption of vegetables and unprocessed carbohydrates was associated with the lowest prevalence of metabolic syndrome. Another study published this month looked at 34 women who were obese. They did not have diabetes. They were put into three groups. So the control group was told to maintain their current weight. And then there were two groups on low-calorie diets. And their daily calories were restricted so that they would lose 10% of their starting weight. And they were actually successful at losing that 10%. The first group was receiving the recommended daily allowance of protein. And the second group received about 150% of the recommended daily allowance. And they found that although both groups lost about the same amount of weight, those on the recommended daily allowance of protein improved their insulin sensitivity by up to 30%, whereas those on the high-protein diet did not improve their insulin sensitivity. And there was also no improvement in oxidative stress, which did improve on the recommended daily um, allowance of protein. So high-protein diet can work for weight loss, but for um, reversing insulin, insulin resistance, which I mentioned is a core feature of metabolic syndrome, a high-protein diet does not seem um, ideal. I wanted to read a couple quotes from Councils on Diets and Foods on dietary recommendations. Ellen White said, Grains, fruits, nuts, and vegetables constitute the diet chosen for us by our Creator. These foods prepared in as simple and natural a manner as possible are the most helpful on page 81. And then she said on pages 94 and 95, that which is most conducive to health can be secured in almost every land. And she added to the whole grains, beans, peas, and lentils. So she included legumes in an optimal diet. So when my patients want to lose weight, I tell them about this study from Harvard looking at over 100,000 persons from the Nurses' Health Studies 1 and 2 and the Health Professionals Follow-Up Study. They looked at people over decades and they were able to isolate different food components in their diets and measure which components were most associated with weight gain or weight loss over time. And the foods that were associated with weight loss are represented by the bars to the left. Vegetables, nuts, whole grains, fruits, and yogurt. Now I recommend the first four in this list, the vegetables, nuts, whole grains, and fruits, because they have antioxidants, they are high in fiber, and they are cholesterol-free. Let's see. 
This year, the American College of Endocrinology published their consensus guidelines for treatment of insulin-resistant type 2 diabetes, and they recommend a mostly plant-based diet for this group of people. The American Diabetes Association, in their annual standards of care published earlier this year, recommended diet high in fiber, foods that are high in fiber, which would be plant foods, and low in glycemic load. And they said if a person with diabetes is overweight or obese, they should also restrict their calories with the goal of losing 5 to 10% of their weight. So when patients in my clinic want to know what they can eat to lose weight, I suggest they eat foods that are high in fiber and high in water. Neither of those components contains calories, and they both will add volume to their food so that their stomach will be full before they have exceeded their calorie allotment for the meal. So the green leafy vegetables you can see, the fruits, especially the up above the ground vegetables, are some of the richest foods in water. And then for fiber, I recommend that people um, look at the fullplateliving.org website where there is a free fiber guide listing the foods high in fiber in various categories. This is just a sample of their um, handout for or their webpage for nuts and seeds. So it shows the serving size, the number of calories per serving, and then the number of grams of fiber per serving. And they have a similar guide for vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and legumes. I like to tell my patients with diabetes about this study on legumes. Adults with type 2 diabetes were given a three-month trial, and they were told to add one cup of cooked legumes to their diet every day. So two half-cup servings of legumes, and at the end of the three months, they had lost on average 5.7 pounds, they dropped their A1C by 0.5, and their triglycerides came down by 21 points. Now, the number of the medicines we use for type 2 diabetes lower A1C by close to 0.5. So I tell patients legumes are an effective natural treatment for type 2 diabetes. The question arises, how often should patients with insulin-resistant diabetes who are wanting to lose weight eat? This study uh, looked at adults with type 2 diabetes, put them on three meals a day with three snacks, which they abbreviated as six meals a day, or um, in another group, they had the same um, types of patients consuming two meals per day. The first meal was eaten in the early morning by 10 a.m. The second meal was eaten in the afternoon at least by 4 p.m., anywhere between noon and 4 p.m. And both groups had their calories restricted by 500 per day. And what they found is those on the two meals a day had reduced their waist circumference by the end of the study um, nearly four times as much as those on the six meals a day those on the two meals a day reduced their body mass index significantly more than those on six meals a day. Fasting blood sugar on two meals a day came down by 14 milligrams per deciliter, whereas on six meals a day came down by just 8.46 milligrams per deciliter. And insulin sensitivity improved over twice as much on two meals a day versus six meals a day. Councils on Diets and Foods, page 176, said the practice of eating but two meals a day is generally found a benefit to health, yet under some circumstances, persons may require a third meal. Well, the health professionals follow-up study wanted to assess what frequency of meals would be most beneficial, and they looked at over 29,000 men who were eating anywhere from once a day to eight times a day, 
And they defined snacking as eating more than three meals per day. So the men who were eating more than three times a day increased, had an increased risk of type 2 diabetes, which was mediated by a higher body mass index in those men who were snacking. So if a person's going to eat a third meal, how large should that meal be? Should that how should it compare to breakfast? The study of adults with insulin-resistant diabetes were put onto two meal patterns. In the first case, on the breakfast diet, so they ate nearly half of their calories for breakfast and a small supper of 205 calories, or they ate just the opposite, a very small breakfast, a large supper. And then they looked at glucose levels. Sorry if it's difficult to see there. Glucose for those on the heavy breakfast diet had dropped 20% one to two hours after the meals in, compared to those who were eating the large dinner. And insulin levels were actually 20% higher for those on the heavy breakfast diet. And these patients were not taking insulin injections, so the elevated insulin levels suggested improved pancreatic function. So I was reminded of a quote from Councils on Diets and Foods, page 173, which says, at breakfast time, the stomach is in a better condition to take care of more food than at the second or third meal of the day. Make your breakfast correspond more nearly to the heartiest meal of the day. So I advise patients simply to eat breakfast like a king, lunch like a queen, and supper like a commoner. To make it simple for my patients, and I guess to give them a practical example of what this could look like, I typed up a sample meal plan. Now, I don't tell patients that they should follow this exactly, and it's not a diet. It's really more of an exchange system, so it gives them ideas of healthy starches, healthy proteins, healthy fats. But I do tell them they could try to start eating breakfast, for example, um, according to this plan. And I also warn them that if they were to overnight start eating this kind of a diet, if they aren't used to eating much fiber, they might have gastrointestinal disturbance. So for um, breakfast, I give them a recipe for making whole grain cereal in a crock pot overnight, and then have fruit options, healthy fats, protein. For lunch, recommend a large salad and some starch options as well as fat, and then supper is the, definitely the lightest meal. Other tools in my office are a hanging file folder in which I have a number of handouts, one of which is a recipe file. When patients start eating their big salad for lunch, they likely will want salad dressing to put on it, so I have cholesterol-free salad dressing recipes in there. And then I recommend that they use different free apps. Calorie King makes an app, that has a pretty large database of foods, including restaurant foods, where, through which they can quickly look up the nutritional information. They can also see the nutritional information for bulk foods. And then supertracker.usda.gov has a free diet analysis software that they can plug in what they eat in a day, and it will give them the breakdown of their macro and micronutrient intake. It's also free. Fiber guides, I do have a handout with list of fiber content of different foods. And then these are some of the magazines on my counter. Patients like to ask if they can take them home because they often see a recipe that they want to try. How many of you use an electronic health record? It's probably most of us in this room. 
Yeah, I found and probably you have found using save findings or macros can save a lot of time. So I like to put my lifestyle recommendations in as save findings that I can insert into the plan that they take home and can refer to later. So moving on to sleep, I want to read a couple of quotes from um, the writings of Ellen White. The importance of regularity in the time for eating and sleeping should not be overlooked. Since the work of building up the body takes place during the hours of rest, it is essential, especially in youth, that sleep should be regular and abundant. And that's from Child Guidance, page 363. And then in Seven Manuscript Releases, page 224, she says, Sleep is worth far more before than after midnight. Two hours good sleep before 12 o'clock is worth more than four hours after 12 o'clock. So the three things that we see are that Sleep should be regular, abundant, and sleep before midnight is worth more than afterwards. So studies have looked at the duration of sleep and its link with metabolic syndrome. And seven to eight hours of sleep per night has been associated with a lower prevalence of metabolic syndrome. And on a survey, when, patients re when people reported sleeping less than five hours a night, they had a 50% increased risk of having metabolic syndrome. So that from the previous page, um, the abundance of sleep we see is certainly important for metabolic health. And then the second thing that I read about in those quotes was that sleep should be regular. Social jet lag is now being studied in relation to metabolic health. Um, and it's really the difference between a person's naturally preferred versus socially imposed sleep schedule. So if I went to bed and got up one hour later on weekends than I did on weeknights, I would have a social jet lag of one hour. Researchers Wong and colleagues from University of Pittsburgh looked at social jet lag and found that those who had a social jet lag of greater than 60 minutes had a higher risk of having low HDL cholesterol, high triglycerides, insulin resistance, greater waist circumference, and higher body mass index. And these individuals in the study actually were middle-aged, healthy adults um, who had day shifts. So these were not like swing shift workers. They worked during um, the day, during the week, and then had different sleep schedules socially imposed on weekends. Morningness and eveningness um, have also been found to relate to metabolic syndrome. Morningness or a morning chronotype re uh, represents people who go to bed early and get up early. People with eveningness or the evening type go to bed late and get up late. So a study from Korea by you and colleagues looked at over 1,600 persons that they grouped into either the morning type, the evening type, or neither. And they found the morning types went to bed, I guess, on average around 10.50 at night. And they got up, people are laughing, does that sound like a late bedtime? <laughs> they awakened around 5.38 in the morning on average. Those with the evening type went to bed close to 1 a.m and awakened around 7.30 a.m. And both groups ended up sleeping the same length of time overall. There was no significant difference. But what they found was the evening type was associated with a 1.7-fold increased risk of diabetes 
and metabolic syndrome, and there was also an increased risk of low muscle mass in the eating type. So we um, see that those three things we just read about from the quotes from Ellen White, um, regularity in sleep, abundant sleep, and sleep before midnight do have an impact on metabolic health. So I can give my patients um, evidence-based recommendations for improving their lifestyle in clinic, but I think to make it really practical for them, it's helpful to use SMART goals. Has anyone used SMART goals? Yeah, number of people are nodding their heads. So they're specific, measurable, achievable, results-focused, and timely. I had a patient present in clinic recently to, for me to optimize her insulin regimen. And I asked her, I told her, insulin works best when it's accompanied by a healthful lifestyle. So I said, is there anything you could do, you think, through healthy eating or through physical activity to also lower your blood sugars? And she thought for a while and then she said, well, I snack on sweet cranberries during the mornings. So I asked her if she liked fresh fruit and she did. She said she really liked grapes. So after dialoguing with her for a little while, she decided to add one serving of grapes, and we talked about counting those out to make sure she was getting exactly a serving um, as dessert with her lunch to replace the cranberries she was snacking on during the morning. So that's the specific goal. She was going to continue that for a few months till she saw me again in clinic. And then even if I help my patients make SMART goals, as a Christian physician, I feel like those uh, patients are going to be most successful in achieving the goals when they have faith in God, trust in God. A patient came to my clinic earlier this month who mentioned she had lost 80 pounds over a six-month period. And I said to her what I usually say when people are successful with weight loss. I asked, how did you do it? And she said, I was in a church-based program. She said, I really wasn't on any particular diet. The focus was just controlling portion sizes. And she said it was a very spiritual program in which we claimed Bible promises whenever we were confronted with uh, temptation to overeat. So I was reminded of this quote from Councils on Diets and Foods, page 28, in order to rightly understand the subject of temperance, we must consider it from a Bible standpoint. And certainly, Bible promises are powerful motivators for lifestyle change. One research group that's implementing a biblical philosophy in a weight loss approach is the Collaborators for the Word. This is a church-based lifestyle intervention program. They're really following the guidelines of the Diabetes Prevention Program as far as lifestyle intervention for diet and exercise. But they're also giving spiritual messages at each session. And see, these are some of the spiritual messages that they are offering. You can look up their study online. This is just the study design that I listed. The results are not out yet. I believe the study is ongoing. But I think although these um, principles are certainly applicable for a group intervention, they could also be useful in clinic. And some of my favorite texts here, quotes, were the difference between a righteous man and wicked is that the righteous falls seven times and gets up. Proverbs 24, 17. And then, the race is not to the swift or the strongest, Ecclesiastes 9.11, but to those who endure and lean on the Lord. 
A patient came to my clinic a few months ago with type 2 diabetes. He was concerned um, because his A1C had most recently been 12.2, which corresponds to an average blood sugar around 300. And he did not work outside the home, and so he was exposed to the temptation to eat the food that was easily accessible in his refrigerator throughout the day. I talked with him about lifestyle interventions, and at the end of the visit, I said, I offer to say a prayer with my patients. Would you like me to say a prayer with you? He did. When he came back a few months later, his average blood sugar on the glucometer for the last two weeks was 159. So I said, how did you do it? And he said, God has strengthened me. God is really giving me willpower to resist eating those foods that I would normally overindulge in. And he thanked for the prayer, and I'm sure he'd been praying on his own as well. So in summary, it's really a privilege to share these simple lifestyle strategies with patients in clinic on how they can improve their metabolic health. It's a privilege to help them set SMART goals and to pray with them and then watch God empower healthy lifestyle choices. Thank you for your attention and I will give the microphone over to Dr. Hillman. That was, uh, that was very hopeful, though, some of the really encouraging practical information that Dr. Nancor gave, and I hope you are able to apply those. I've, I've um, seen those same recommendations work um, when uh, working at uh, both Weimar over three and a half years and, and at Wildwood patients over that period of time. They're extremely, extremely successful, and in a very short period of time, patients see results, and they feel so much better when they do. Um, all right, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about exercise um, and then actually looking at some of the evidence base um, behind sunlight and fresh air. Um, one of the difficulties for me is, you know, we have a lot of counsel and spirit of prophecy concerning getting outdoor exercise and sunlight, um, but I wanted to know what, the, what is the data. There's that part of me that I have a difficult time sharing with patients what I don't know if I don't know why it works. And so I just want to share with you a little bit of the data that comes um, with that, because I, I shared the information with them, but it's so much more powerful and I can share with them, um, especially how, um, how it works. This is one of the statements, again, there are countless statements in Spirit of Prophecy, but this is one of the most powerful, tying in each of the principles that I'm going to talk about. If those who are sick, so again, we're not talking just about well people, but those who are not feeling well already, would exercise their muscles daily, women and men, women as well as men, in outdoor work, using brain, bone, and muscle proportionately, weakness and languor would disappear. Health would take the place of disease and strength the place of feebleness rising above their aches and pains. So again, people with aches and pains, rising above their aches and pains, let them engage in useful employment suited to their strength. So that's the other, another key component. By such employment and the free use of air and sunlight, many an emaciated invalid might recover health and strength. And we're gonna talk about why some of these things are likely important. Um, with metabolic syndrome, exercise is very critical. Um, looking at a study um, cons uh, that looked at women, uh, mainly elderly women, over the age of 65, over 12 months, what they found is exercise, and they didn't specify the different types of exercises that, the, that people had used. Um, it was aerobic, but they didn't specify the exact amount. What they noticed is that truncal body fat decreased. So the fat that is more dangerous, you guys have heard about, apple-shaped versus pear-shaped, right? 
pear-shaped being specifically fat under the skin, and then um, apple-shaped being fat that's around the organs. That's the more dangerous metabolically active, active the one that is um, more prone to give a person um, insulin resistance because of different hormones um, that are increased and decreased when there's a bunch of fat increased around the organs or when it's larger. Um, and then hip circumference also is decreased, triglycerides and HDL. And you guys recognize these because Dr. Inancourt mentioned those as those factors that are involved in metabolic syndrome. So we noticed that exercise significantly improved this, and again, um, this was over a year. In these studies, they didn't show as much change in glucose, high-sensitive CRP, um, again, we're looking at metabolic syndrome and its effect on heart disease or in blood pressure, but understand that in this study they didn't, spec they didn't look at the duration, and we'll talk about why duration matters in exercise um, in just a little bit. Um, this was a longitudinal, longitudinal study done looking at people over 16 to 18, um, over 16 to 18 years. Um, these are men ages 30 to 59. Um, they, what I love about this study is that they looked at people in all different levels of activity to help us understand, okay, how much activity and what amount matters. Sedentary versus moderate activity versus high activity. And the, specifically when they talked about high activity, now we're not talking about people running marathons, we're not talking about them, you know, doing, um, doing, uh, what is it, PX90 or anything like that. What it specifically is talking about is training with expenditure. So they look over a week, how many calories are they expending with exercise specifically, not just the um, amount of calories they're expending from sitting and lying down, but, but exercising specifically. And what that comes out to is roughly, you're talking about um, exercise that's burning about 300 kilocalories a day, okay? What, giving you an idea of what that means, if you take a 160 pound male walking three and a half miles an hour, they're burning about 314 calories if they walk for about an hour, okay? So just to give you kind of a picture. Again, what they found is that if people um, exercise in that range, burning about 2,000 um, calorie kilocalories a week, or let's say roughly 300 ca um, kilocalories a day for seven days, they're, and the activity that they're doing, this one specifically found that the activity that they were doing were helping them maintain good aerobic activity, the exercise and fitness, okay? Aerobic is the key to take out from, this, from these studies. Um, they were able to, this was found to be a very protective factor for them when it came to metabolic syndrome, especially in middle-aged men. Um, HDL, we tell patients oftentimes to increase their HDL. What do we usually tell them to do to increase HDL? Exercise, right? So, but what type of exercise? That was one thing that was key for me. So, if a person has one um, milligram per deciliter decrease in their HDL, that's two to three percent increase in their risk of heart disease. Can you imagine, you know, for males, do you remember what the goal was for males where their good cholesterol needed to be? Around 40. 40 for a male and then 50 for a female. And many of our patients are sitting around 20, 25, 30. Um, at the most, so imagine then what their increased risk of heart disease is. 2007 Japanese meta-analysis study actually found that duration, okay, the duration of the exercise had more to do um, with increasing the HDL than the intensity or the frequency of the exercise. Um, but, and, and many times when I used to mention to patients, oh, what does this mean as far as the duration of exercise, they thought, oh great, that means I have to go out you know, all day long <laughs> every day to be able to increase my good cholesterol. What they found was as little as 20 minutes was beneficial, okay? So that's another encouraging statistic. So 20 minutes continuously um, with added benefit um, for every 10 minutes that was added. Beyond an hour, you, the effect was plateaued. 
Okay, so going for two hours, three hours didn't necessarily add, give an added benefit. One thing though that I do um, encourage you to understand is when they were looking at the exercise, they're talking about maintaining the heart rate for that 20 minute period. For some patients, that means they can walk, sit, walk, sit. And during that period of time of sitting, their heart rate is still up if they're not very fit. So for your obese patients, um, that 20 minutes of exercise just means that they're keeping their heart rate up. Does that make sense? And it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be moving the entire time. So important for those who, uh, who have aches and pains also. What type of exercise? By far and away, study after study has shown, again, aerobic exercise. What does that mean? Specifically getting their target heart rate into the 60% to 85% 60 to, um, beyond that, there are some detriments, but again, even up to the 70, 75% range. Um, it will actually reduce that, that um, fat that creates and decreases levels of adiponectin, increasing levels of resistance that will increase re um, insulin resistance um, and also to help improve weight loss. Um, Korean study actually looked at um, patients over a period of time and it, this makes very good sense but it was just nice that they looked at it and then studied it out. Irrespective of how much um, weight that a person had, whether they were lean or obese, the ratio Okay, the ratio of their muscle to their fat made a pretty big difference in preventing metabolic syndrome. So if they had more muscle rather than fat, they had less likelihood of developing metabolic syndrome later on, even if they were maybe a little bit um, on the heavier side. So one of the things I just encourage patients, especially if you're talking to younger patients, um, making sure that they engage in doing um, resistance training ahead of time. There are multiple benefits for that, including osteoporosis, other things like that. Um, understand people with metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes have a significant increase in, in um, osteoporosis, so resistance training helps them in multiple, um, in, in many avenues, many ways. Um, another meta-analysis in 2010, this one specifically took patients that had already had impaired glucose tolerance, what people term as pre-diabetes. Um, and then type 2 diabetes, um, and these were looking at, at studies that are, all the studies included were randomized controlled trials. Um, they were looking at resistance training, and they looked at the amount of resistance training also in all of these. When a person included resistance training, this was just resistance training, no um, aerobic um, exercise changes in these patients, just resistance training. They had a reduction in their A1C, so their blood glucose, overall blood glucose over a three-month period, their fat mass, and their systolic blood pressure. Okay. These are just looking at the studies. The, the, the um, uh, physician who composed this study actually looked, um, took the study and then went a little bit further to find out how much time did it actually take for this to happen. So um, by the same author, she's looking at the duration of resistance training and had patients just doing one bout. So one time they you know, are doing um, some resistance training 30 minutes. Okay. Um, so you then looked at them at three months and then looked at them at four months. Um, what I, I take away from this is that a lot of the markers did not change until that four month, closer to that four month period. What does this mean for our patients? You know, we wanna make sure that we help patients understand that it's gonna take time to see some of the changes. One of the good things is they will feel better sometimes before their markers fully change, but engaging them and telling them ahead of time, look, give me six months. We're gonna implement some of these changes. We're gonna slowly do them over six months. And then these are some of the things that we can expect to see happen. And when it comes to resistance training, especially for many of these markers, it may take, um, and this is low-level resistance training. Again, um, for 30 minutes, three days a week is roughly the average that they had for these patients. It may take about four months for them to see significant changes in, in many of these markers. 
Um, by far and away, study after study has still shown when you, when you combine aerobic training with resistance training, that patients do better in all markers con concerned with uh, metabolic syndrome. Um, I, uh, the other question is sort of how much, okay? When looking at these studies, by the way, um, I, this PDF I can also send to you. Um, I'll give you my email address at the end so that you can have all of these studies. But this, the article um, by the author by the name of Strasser, um, she does a really, really great job in being able to summarize all of the exercise studies to date. I think this was in 2015, no, 2013 that she had, she had looked at some of these studies. She's a, she has good, does a really, really good summary of the evidence behind many of these. So I recommend that you look at that for a little bit more detail. But the best results, again, you'll see many studies saying that a person needs moderate intensity exercise. What we're basically, to, to give you an idea, all of the studies are talking about those with, that expend at least 300 kilocalories a day, at minimum of five up to six days a week. Okay, that's what we're looking for. That's a duration. So irrespective of whether they say it's moderate or high intensity or whatever, 300 kilocalories a day that they're expending specifically in exercise. Um, and then ideally 60 minutes a day, okay? Um, those who had greater than 300 minutes per week of exercise were able to maintain their weight loss, right? We don't wanna just get the weight off, we wanna keep it off. What does that mean? Roughly you're talking about 45 minutes over seven days, um, or you're talking about one hour five days a week, just to give your patients an idea. But here's the really encouraging thing. The activity spread throughout the day also made a difference, okay? So some of my patients, I've got patients that have, that have either fibromyalgia or patients who have really severe osteoarthritis and they cannot walk for an hour, okay? But they can do 10 minutes multiple times a day, five or six times a day, or they can do 20 minutes three times a day. And those patients can see the same benefits. So encourage your patients, if you give them that hope, all of a sudden it doesn't seem as daunting. And also remind them that we're working towards a goal. We're not starting at the, at the end goal when we do this. Um, other benefits um, of exercise on metabolic syndrome. I'm just gonna look at my time really quickly because I might come back to this slide. Um, other benefits of metabolic syndrome, um, under, or, or of exercise metabolic syndrome. Barriers to exercise. What are the common things that your patients will tell you when they say that they cannot exercise, right? Pain. I have pain. A lot of low back pain. I actually would refer you guys, um, if you weren't here for the previous lecture that Dr. Joe Kim had done on pain, he actually gave some good tips concerning pain. Um, and if you'll um, talk to, if you will listen, if you're on Audioverse, listen to that um, lecture. It can help you with helping, giving some ideas concerning um, how to be able to combat that, but understand American Rheumatologic Association has mentioned this and so has um, the American Association, or the um, uh, American Board of Internal Medicine, um, some of the, the consensus that they've, uh, consensus statements that they've made, those who have chronic pain, who are not active, have more days and greater intensity of pain than those who are less active or sedentary. And encourage your patients, especially those that, are, that have pain, that actually they will do better over time um, if, they, if they can continue to stay moving. Um, uh, one thing I wanna also mention, the benefit of resistance training. One thing that I find with my patients over and over again, when they start exercising, injury and pain is what will keep them from continuing to exercise. 
those that incorporate resistance training have less injury, less falls, um, and are better able to maintain the exercise long term. I have family members who are concerned about their, their family, their elderly patients walking because of fall. If they incorporate resistance training, balance actually improves and, um, and so does the risk of in, uh, reducing a reduction in the risk of injury and um, pain. Um, sorry, and falls. Um, other things, just practical tips that I found. So one of the benefits that I had when I worked at Weimar for the, the three and a half years and then um, over at um, Wildwood is I got to follow patients daily, okay? So I get to hear their complaints day and night, day and night. Um, and that's a good thing though because then we got to address what really works and what doesn't work because when a patient goes home, I don't always know what, what is necessarily working. And I'll tell you with my patients especially that had osteoarthritis, one of the most critical things that helped is if they iced for 20 minutes, okay? They go out and they exercise. If they will ice the joints that typically hurt for 20 minutes after they exercise, the, the delayed pain and stiffness the next morning, the next day that will prevent them from exercising is significantly decreased. They're more able to function the next day. And it's a very practical, simple thing to do. Um, one, one other little quick tip I throw to people, um, gel packs, you know, you may be working with patients who are, who are not, um, who don't have a lot of money, um, high fruit, or high fructose, sorry, corn syrup, caro syrup or light corn syrup, if you put that into a Ziploc bag and put it in the freezer, it's a cheap ice pack um, that they can use. And especially those that have um, you know, large joints where you know, ice poking into their back um, is going to cause pain. These are things that, that um, significantly helped and kept my patients walking. Um, if you've ever been into a Pathways to Health, it's the same thing um, that we've actually found. Ice massage really works to help people um, with, uh, with pain. Um, if patients are having trouble exercising for long periods of time, this is another benefit of um, uh, working both at Weimar and at Wildwood. If they are dehydrated, their endurance is going to decrease. If they have high protein diets, their endurance is gonna decrease. So high carbohydrate diets, complex carbohydrates, will actually help them with glycogen stores um, to be able to maintain duration of exercise also. Um, really quickly, and I apologize, my timer never started. Do you, does anyone, can you just give me the time really quickly? 10 minutes, okay, all right. So let me just talk to you really quickly, sunlight. This is actually one of my, uh, the amazing things, I, you know, what does sunlight actually do for us? One of the things, UV radiation actually increases circulating nitric oxide. If you guys were there last night, we understood that nitric oxide was one of the mechanisms, one of the very potent um, uh, um, factors when it came to, as, as far as antioxidants were concerned, right? Um, or, or a free radical that was actually beneficial. Um, helps with vasodilation and lowered blood pressure. This was looking at human subjects and what the direct effect was of UV radiation. Um, but uh, the studies that, you know, we found so many different benefits um, from exercise. This is a study that is often quoted. It's a Swedish cohort study looking over 12 years. Those with the greatest exposure of, um, to sunlight had a 30% um, risk reduction when it came to lower risk of actually having diabetes later on. And that's pretty profound. I mean, very few things reduce your risk by 30%. Getting out into the sunlight is one of those things that actually helped. They, one of the things they postulated also, because they were looking at different mechanisms, is um, was there an effect also on glucose metabolism? In 2014, this is a study that has gotten a lot of excitement. Um, the challenges that was done in mice, these are high fat fed diet mice. Um, the, this um, study was really profound as, as you exposed these mice with high fat diets to UV radiation. Um, 
I mean, factor after factor after factor involved in metabolic syndrome decreased. Weight gain, glucose intolerance, insulin resistance, um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and serum fasting levels of insulin, glucose, and cholesterol. Okay, this is UV radiation. What was fantastic about this study is that it, they found that it was independent of the vitamin D, because one of the things many of my patients will say is, well, can't I just take a vitamin D supplement instead of going outside? What we're finding is that there are benefits that are outside of the vitamin D when getting out with, when, when you get out into the exercise uh, and exercise in the sunlight. These, this study has spawned several human studies that are now going on, so continue to look for data in the future concerning this. Now that um, sparked a, a thought back to a quote I read um, before. This is from your review in Herald, June 20th, 1899, Article B. Those who eat freely of pork cannot but be diseased. Those who have much outdoor exercise do not realize the bad effects of pork eating as those who do whose, um, those do whose life is mostly indoors and whose habits are sedentary and labor is mental. I'm not promoting eating pork. What I, what I want you to understand is many of our patients that are engaged in eating diets that promote metabolic syndrome when they get outside us and exercise, there are benefits that are confirmed. God gave wisdom to Sister White to mention that outdoor exercise and the exercise itself helps and has a protective factor in that and encouraging our patients to make sure they engage in that. The other really cool thing I love about this, this these um, studies that have come out and recently, this is in 2001, UV radiation. When we get exposure of the sun on our skin, the hair follicles and the pigment cells of our skin actually produce beta endorphins. What are beta endorphins? They're the natural opioids of our body. They help actually with pain reduction. So patients with pain, when they get outside and exercise, one of the benefits actually is getting them um, out there. And also it's a feel-good hormone, so a feeling of well-being improves. Um, I'll come back to that quote if, if I have a little bit of time. Um, this was a systematic review looking at 11 trials, total of 833 participants over all of these trials, looking at outdoor versus indoor activity. Those who um, exercised outdoors had a greater feeling of just feeling overall well-being, increased energy and positive engagement, decreased tension, confusion, and depression. And understand many of these things are things that prevent our patients from getting exercise to begin with. You add those benefits, taking them outside, it's improved. But here's what's neat. They had a greater enjoyment and satisfaction with outdoor activity. How many of my patients repeatedly mention, I just hate exercise, okay? And getting them outside, they're more likely to engage. And we found this over and over again, both when I was at Weimar and at Wildwood. If we'd get patients outside, rather than on a machine staring at a wall, they were more likely to actually engage in exercise. And this, this study, the patients said that they were more likely to engage with activity later, but they didn't measure this. Um, this next study, though, a Canadian study, actually looked at adherence to exercise. There are other benefits that were mentioned just as in before, but what they found is in postmenopausal women, outdoor versus indoor exercise, when they followed them long term, they were more likely to stay engaged with exercise, right? Because we're not just concerned about short term results, but long term results with our patients. Um, um, as far as sustainability is concerned, um, where am I roughly? Eight minutes left, okay. Um, so just to give you um, a couple of really quick tips, these are practical tips that I found helping our patients succeed. I'll tell you over and over again, no matter how many times you tell your patient that you want them to exercise and they keep coming back and they haven't exercised, they haven't exercised, what are the, some of the things that we can do practically that have helped our patients succeed? One is talk to them and find out what their obstacles are, okay? 
Is it pain? You know, with many of my patients, low back pain over and over again, especially in patients that have put on weight, low back pain is the limiting factor. We used to, and in our in Spirit of Prophecy, we used to teach people actually a lot about posture and, uh, and um, talking to them about um, what, what we now talk about as core strength, right? In many exercise programs, they talk about core strength, but we don't talk about that very much anymore. With our patients, when we teach them how to be able to do very simple exercises for core strength, pelvic tilt um, and doing things like um, knee to chest exercises and, and developing their core strength, what ends up happening is these patients are then able to engage with less back pain. Okay, I have my patients, it takes two minutes, two minutes every day to do um, 10 sets. Does everybody know what the pelvic tilt, if you guys, essentially you're lying on your back and you are pushing, your, your knees are bent and then you're pushing your, your stomach or down, into the, down into the floor, okay? You're essentially tightening and, and strengthening your core. It's a physical therapy exercise that, that are very people, it's not as easy as you think, even people who are, quite, who are um, aerobically, um, who are aerobically fit may not necessarily actually have good core strength. Um, but if you, if you can help them do these exercises, they're less likely to be in pain over and over again. Patients that have told me if they do those exercises and do the knee to chest, again, two minutes in the morning, two minutes in the evening, takes at the most five to 10 minutes in a day, depending how slow or fast that they do it, they have less back pain um, when they are engaging in exercise. Um, let, me, um, let me other, one of the things many of you are just gonna tell me, because to me, the practicality is very important. I am not the most efficient patient person in seeing patients. And so when I take extra time to do all of this, this is very challenging. Um, and one principle that I learned, um, and this principle was actually brought to me, I remember my husband and my sister actually both had talked to me about this, is um, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that we have varying gifts, right? God has given us different gifts. Know the gifts of your staff members. When you're selecting an MA, maybe you're working for a company, um, it's not your own practice, but they're selecting an MA, specifically ask for um, an MA who likes to engage and talk with patients. I had the most wonderful experience. I, I finally decided I needed to go and get a primary care physician myself <laughs> recently, and um, I, I, it, was a, it was a PA who was um, working in the city close by. She had the most wonderful MA actually sat and took the information that many a times physicians end up sitting and spending pouring over and over hours um, in doing this. Um, one of the things that you can do, you can have your MA or your CNA fill out standardized questionnaires ahead of time. When you go into the office, they're gonna ask you anyway about um, you know, whether you're smoking or you're drinking alcohol or you're doing whatever else. Have them also talk to the patient, how much are you exercising, okay? How much are you exercising? But then also asking them, you make the standardized questionnaire, what are your barriers to exercise? Now understand that your MA or CNA may not know what to ask, but give them, you know, put on the questionnaire specifically, is it back pain that's keeping you from doing it? Do you just not like to exercise? Is it taking too much time? Are you busy? Whatever it may be. Have them fill, those, fill out that information ahead of time so that you can quickly look at it and then address those issues with your patients. Um, for um, some patients, so I work as a hospitalist, right? I have even less time with everything else and all the paperwork that I have to do. One of the things that I found is nurse educators, every single hospital has to meet core measures. And many of these nurse educators are flagged, you know, for smoking education, they're flagged for coronary artery disease patients, chest pain patients, COPD patients. 
Um, your nurse educators are oftentimes doing it because they love to educate patients. I simply handed to one of my nurse educators um, a thing. I said, look, if I find patients who come in, you know, their 20 um, chest pains are quick. They're 24 hours in and out of the hospital. Okay. I handed to them, these are patients I've identified as having metabolic syndrome. I'm going to flag them as a nurse education. Can you take this, this questionnaire and can you address some of these things with these issues with the patients? She was very willing to do it. And then she would flag the note back to me. When I went to discharge the patient, I'd quickly mention to her, hey, you talked to the nurse educator about these things. Um, are, you, are there any particular points that you want to implement? Um, the patient would tell which factors they were going to implement, and then I put that in my discharge summary for the primary care physician, so that the primary care physician knows that the patient has made this commitment, and I would ask the, and I've let the patient know that you will be asking them concerning the follow-up on this. So even as a hospitalist, you have opportunities. Let me also mention one last thing, because I know my time is up. Um, I am. One other way, if you're a subspecialist, you know, I, I learn so much from my colleagues. Um, two in particular, we have an amazing oncologist um, at Cumberland Medical Center, an oncologist and, um, and a, um, an orthopedic surgeon, um, both well-loved in the community, and they use their PAs very, very well. You know, um, nurses and, um, and PAs that are oftentimes working for subspecialists will mention that they don't feel like, they feel like they're just doing paperwork all the time, they don't have time to actually engage with the patient one of the best ways to get them to engage, so when a patient actually came into the hospital, their cancer patients were actually, or the orthopedic patients, they would actually send their PA not only to just do the quick note and follow up for how they're doing in the hospital, but what they would actually do is to do this. The patient's a captive audience in the hospital during that 24-hour period, and they would give them a quick little questionnaire to find out and look at some of the barriers that they were having towards implementing some of the exercises or, or regimens or nutrition regimens that they had recommended to the patient. The patient would fill out that information and then the, the physician would actually just touch base with them. So use your resources that you have um, in, in effective ways. We have primary care physicians who will send their PAs um, to get them more engaged they will send their PAs to the hospital for five or 10 minutes just to do this. Um, it is, and, and the PAs, again, like I said, they love it. They feel like they're actually talking to the patient and not just doing paperwork for the physician. Um, so, um, so again, these are just a couple of things, and I just encourage you, the, the, um, the uh, last thing, I guess, that I would, I would mention to you, two, two other verses that have just um, made a profound impact in my practice. Um, Revelation 12, 11, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. No matter where I have been in practice, whether it's been at Weimar for the three and a half years, whether it was at Wildwood, whether it was in the hospitalist patient, when patients share testimonies it in, to other patients, they engage and they want to make the changes themselves. If you're holding dinner with the doctors in your community, if you are, um, if you have group sessions in your in your clinic, have patients specifically pick out patients who have had um, who have improved. And even if they're not coming to the group, tell your patients, would you mind just coming and sharing five minutes what happened at the beginning of the dinner with the doctor, or whatever? What happened um, when you engage these things? When patients hear the stories from other patients, they're more likely to engage than they are when you and I sometimes mention to them our stories, unless we're sharing our own personal stories with them. So don't forget the power um, that, that, that comes with that. Um, I will end with that. I will, um, I will end and then we'll take questions. 
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.